Welcome to the Flannery Podcast. This is episode 51, the issue, We Live to Fight Another Day. Stay tuned. I was thinking about how we should approach uh, a discussion this week after the impeachment trial. And I thought uh, the best way to do it is if we were all sitting around a table, and we're not, but we're kind of, and uh, what if we talked about some of the issues that came to mind? So I jotted down a few of them, and if we were all in a room together, (laughs) we could shout at each other what we thought made sense or what was contradicted and so forth. Uh, My premise for this uh, on uh, Valentine's Day is to start with a uh, a poetic remembrance of Yeats. And Yeats was a very complicated person, as anybody who's ever read what he wrote or saw what he did or any of the theater that he put together or his relationship with Maud Gunn or the spiritual or anything else. But I'm drawing upon his fight for the Irish. And at one point he said, do not wait to strike till the iron is hot, but make it hot by striking. I like that attitude. The Irish attitude is, this a private fighter, can anybody join in? So, uh, on the the impeachment trial, the overall question is, what more could we have done? Uh, We could have uh, sucked it up a little bit more and fought harder, I think. So, I'm going to go through a couple of numbered passages, which uh, I think are in semi-logical order, and, and go over what... I think a trial lawyer would do, unencumbered by uh, being part of an establishment. And by that I mean any organization I think constrains your freedom. I'm not saying I'm some sort of radical, but it's sometimes subtle and it's sometimes very direct. And I think it's foolish to think that the managers had unto themselves the freedom to do what they decided among themselves they should do. And there's one pregnant and obvious example of this when they were calling upon witnesses. But if they had absolute freedom and they thought as I do that one should not trust upon the goodness of a biased tribunal, then I would start in the following way. So my number one is challenge the composition of the jury, the Senate. It consists of witnesses and those senators who gave aid and comfort to the rioters. I'm talking about Hawley and Cruz and others who continued their objection to the pro forma confirmation of Biden as the president-elect based on the Electoral College vote. What were they doing? They were giving credence to the demands even as the rioters were running through the Capitol. So I would have made a motion at the trial right away that certain people should be excluded. And if I had to limit it, I would limit it to the seven or so who made their objections known after the rioters had been forced out of the Capitol. Now, my number two uh, is something that also didn't happen. Demand the witnesses that you want at the beginning of the trial, not after argument. Now, this is something that goes beyond the specific fight that happened at the trial. If you think about it, it's very Alice in Wonderland to have the summation first and then define the evidence afterwards. 
normally what you do is you have the evidence and then you have argument and then you have a verdict and then if it's guilty you have a sentence but this is uh, backwards this is we're going to present all this evidence in this kind of super powerpoint and then at the end of it we're going to say eh, you know we like these witnesses and we'll get to that again now another thing this is my third point an impeachment trial is not a free-for-all um, there there was a uh, uh, when Nixon left office and he was replaced by Ford uh, Ford once said while a member of the House that uh, an impeachment was whatever we say it is and one of the reasons he said this is because he was always chasing after one of my heroes on the Supreme Court Justice Douglas and Douglas was too liberal for him and so he was always trying to drum up charges to impeach him and, and he couldn't and one of the reasons is because there are standards now, if you decide to ignore the law and no one coerces you to conform with it, then there are no standards. And there was a lot of discussion, more than at the last impeachment of Trump, that there were no standards. They could do pretty much what they wanted. That's not right. Uh, there are standards for what is evidence. And the standards for evidence are to assure us reliability of what we're hearing. And so then testimony of a sort is evidence, like admissions eyewitness documents or evidence if they're verifiable and so forth so you establish a foundation for reliable evidence now we kind of passed over this because we all saw it and lived through it and so forth but that lack of discipline invites a freedom to say eh, there are no standards it is whatever we say it is and so uh, that was a problem in the case now the the standard of proof and there are different levels of proof, I'd call this number four, um, is a preponderance of the evidence. And we're used to thinking in criminal cases it's beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's true, it is. But this is a civil matter. There's no punishment, not as we define punishment, that is custody and fines and so forth. So preponderance of the evidence. And that means more likely than not. But there was not a single discussion that I and I, I I'm not sure I was wall-to-wall -wall, but I was pretty close because I was following it to comment on it and had it on while I was doing other things um, so no one to my knowledge said this is what the standard of proof is now let's uh, number five let's say uh, what's the difference between a civil proceeding and a criminal proceeding there was a discussion about my fifth amendment my right to remain silent and so forth well it's not the same right in a civil proceeding as in a criminal proceeding. In a criminal proceeding, you invoke the Fifth Amendment so you won't be a witness against yourself. In a civil proceeding, uh, if you invoke the Fifth Amendment, you may decide to keep your mouth shut. But if you decide to remain mute, not say anything, we can draw adverse inferences from your silence. And when your standard is preponderance of the evidence, this is helpful. And we had a critical elements during the hearing at which, uh, su such as they were, Trump's lawyers were saying, well, you know, I don't know what his position is on this. I don't know if he ignored the people on the Hill. I don't know what he knew. I'm sure he cared, you know, which contradicts the evidence. And we'll talk about that. Uh, number six in my notes Again, we're all sitting around a table, and uh, I'm dominating the conversation right now because I, I can't hear what you're thinking <laughs> to talk to you about it. 
Um, in any other case, and it should be no different in this case, legal issues bind the jurors or judges or whatever you want to call these senators. And that is the legal conclusion, in this case, the critical one, that a person impeached while in office can be tried after they leave office as occurred in a case about 145 years ago. Uh, there's really no dispute about it, but there was a vote about it. What is the law of the case? And so unlike a real trial in which a judge would decide whether or not uh, there was jurisdiction because of this objection, you have the senators vote on it, okay? The senators voted that uh, a person who was impeached while in office could be tried afterwards even though he was now a, quote, private person. Now, when you're talking about Trump, this private person has, uh, is still being paid, <laughs> has a security detail, has all, has all sorts of uh, support staff and so forth, even as a former president, and other people have contributed to create a library, which will contain uh, a couple of criminal law books, I hope. Okay, so now let's go on to number seven. Let's talk about... Uh, free speech. There was a lot of talk during the trial about it. All those uh, Democrats saying, fight, 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 fight. Okay. Well, fight is kind of a metaphor. Uh, it rarely means to fight, except in the sense of to uh, put your shoulder to the grind, to make it happen, to persist, to show resolve, to work at it. And it's not, therefore, literal. But if you were to stand up before people and say, this is how one should overthrow the government, and you were informing them how to do it, but, and I'm giving you the worst case, but you didn't impel them to do something imminently, so if I'm standing before a bunch of people and I say, well, this is how uh, one would overthrow the government, and I, and, and I don't say, go out there and overthrow the government, then I'm closer to teaching than I am to inciting. Now, there are easy and hard cases. The easy case, on one hand, is somebody who says, I want you to fight for this legislation. I want you to fight so our, our rivers and streams are clean. I want you to pass this justice bill. There's nothing else that we can do. I want you to fight that this passes in the House and the Senate. All those are examples that are not about inciting anyone to riot. They're not inciting them to overthrow a government. They're not inciting an insurrection. But when you have any anywhere from years to 77 days in which the president then, Trump, is fomenting people to challenge the government and telling them a lie that the uh, election was stolen from them and telling them we have to take back our government. And then on the day that he summons them to Washington, D.C., is the day, the last day they're deciding whether or not the Electoral College uh, has confirmed Biden as the president-elect, a pro forma meeting in which you just read off the numbers, and that's all the vice president had to do. And Trump on that day with uh, others tells them, go up to the Capitol, march up there. You know, Some of them will be glad to see you. Others won't be glad to see you. He's inciting a riot. And uh, I won't go into detail, but 
you heard the evidence, and only somebody who was from another planet who'd never heard anything about this would think it was anything else. So uh, Trump, who for months prepared his ditto-headed, MAGA-hatted people to do this, and who somehow or other are insulated from all facts and all normal cognitive associations to uh, reasoning, uh, agreed that it had been stolen in some way. It had been stolen by magical election machines. It had been stolen by moving thousands and millions of ballots around, despite the fact that courts, 60 court cases, um, legislatures, all of the battleground states, that uh, um, demonstrations across the country, affidavits proven false, um, individual assaults on those who are responsible for the elections, like the Secretary of State in Georgia. So we had all of this, and you, ha you can't ignore the context and so there's a difference between fight for equal rights for women and go storm the Bastille. And in this case, go storm the Capitol and set this right. I am the president. Save your government. Take care of me. Uh, now, number eight. Uh, I hope you're still at my table now listening to me. <laughs> and if any one of you want to talk up, please do. Um, but I guess you'll probably do it on, on Twitter or something like that. When uh, Trump ignored what everyone else saw on TV, and that he saw on TV, surely, and he rebuffed requests that he help until it was clear that he couldn't delay the vote on the confirmation of the Electoral College that Biden was the president-elect. Only then did he tell everybody you may now leave. You should leave. I love you. Go away. Go home, and so forth. And to me, being a kid from the South Bronx, that struck me as uh, sort of like get out of Dodge before the cops get there, or the National Guard, and so forth. Now, number nine, as uh, uh, Trump's worthless counsel said that Trump cared about the besieged Congress when it was clear he didn't care at all, he was waiting for the objections to be upheld or to be delayed. So one way or the other, he called to encourage the objections to be delayed another day to give him at least that victory, if not to defeat the uh, report from the Electoral College. He didn't tell them to leave, as I said, until there was no hope for his objective to overturn the election. So then it was like he was telling them to get out of Dodge, like I said. Um, and get out before the National Guard gets there. Get out before you could be arrested. Get out before anybody who's a ringleader who might connect any of the several groups and so forth that played a part in this, uh, before any of you, those people could be arrested and perhaps might talk about how it was really arranged. And some of it we're, we're hearing now between and among the groups, and I'm sure we'll hear more. Now, 10... Let's go back specifically to the, the trial and the evidence question. The managers were right to demand testimony to debunk Trump's uh, non-existent concern for his own vice president. I mean, his own vice president was at risk, that they, that they were evacuating him. Uh, the Speaker of the House was at risk. The senators, the congresspersons, they were all at risk. The Capitol Police were fighting back, and they were overwhelmed because they weren't getting support. 
the D.C. police came in, and they were overwhelmed and took terrible beatings and injuries and so forth. And finally, and one might say too late, except for the fact that they didn't carry the day, that is the protesters, the rioters, those insurgents who would take over the Capitol finally failed and were pushed back and pushed away. Number 11, uh, my notes, uh, the Trump rioters were prepared to take out the line of succession if they could. Now, what clearer definition of an insurrection could there be than that they wanted to do that? And Trump continuously rebuffing those who would say, you have to do something, you have to do something, and him doing nothing. Number 12, Trump can't understand, and he underrates uh, the men and women who stood for democracy that day over a takeover that would overrun the Capitol to overrun the voters of the millions of Americans who voted for Biden more than voted for Trump, both in the popular vote and in the electoral vote. Trump couldn't understand that. He was so certain in his fogginess that he could force this to happen. He worked so hard at it. Uh, he, he can't imagine people who are loyal, who are patriots. And he can't because we heard what he said about those in the military. They're suckers. These people who risk their life, not just for an idea, but for a way of life in which we are represented and that we are striving, though we're not there yet, to have equality before the law, equality when we vote, to have access to vote so that we can choose representatives. 13. We might have gotten, I think, 10 more Republicans to come forward. Now, that would have been the objective, because in the end, there were 57 votes to convict. We needed 10 more to convict because we need two-thirds of the votes. Now, did we believe that there was no way in the world to get those additional 10 votes? No. And I think that was the conversation this past Friday, now only two days ago, when the managers were all saying, hey, there's this witness, and she is confirming the fact that Trump said to McCarthy, the minority leader, that, well, I guess those people, they care about the election, which was a kind of loyalty test and an explanation why he was doing nothing and rebuffing nothing. And uh, there is also a conversation in which it is clear that uh, he, Trump, uh, knew that the vice president had been evacuated and apparently did nothing about it, nothing at all. So by his acquiescence, he was telling us that this is an objective that he was quite comfortable with. If his Vice President Pence wasn't going to do what needed to be done, which is to throw out the Biden electors and out of thin air choose electors for Trump, then what did he care about Pence? And we know he's a user. That's no question about that. So. Uh, we were going to have a witness who was going to discuss this issue that came up the day before, and the House managers the from the Congress 
who were responsible for the impeachment resolution, they thought they needed at least one witness to answer this question that Trump's attorney said, oh, I'm sure he cared about them, when in fact he, Trump, did not, and no one believes otherwise. But to put on that proof, they thought would make a difference. And they came into the chambers and they got Republicans to agree with them that they should have witnesses. Well, the uh, Trump's attorneys went crazy, the Republicans went crazy. Heaven help us that we would have evidence in this room. And then the pressure, in my opinion, was put on the managers. Nobody has said that, but how could it be otherwise? Uh, they must not have, well, they may have, but no one understood it. I was gonna say they must not have told Schumer what they were about to do. How else do you explain the ballet that happens then? And as it's resolved, is resolved with a stipulation as to the statement, not subject to cross-examination, no ability for the members of the Senate to judge the demeanor of the individual, uh, how persuasive she was, what documents she had that corroborated the conversation that she had with McCarthy, the minority member in the House. No discussion about calling McCarthy to testify. And, and some would say, well, he might not say the right thing. Well, you have him on tape saying the right thing. So you could compare those two things, and that didn't happen. So the Senate didn't want to do that, and there was enormous pressure to not have any witnesses. And as a result, uh, they took a stipulation. Now let's consider uh, how this would have endangered the uh, reconciliation bill that has to do with, uh, you know, all of the problems of the pandemic and all the funds and all of that that's promised. They're taking off this week. As I talk to you, they're away for the week. So they didn't want to stay there and do the trial, and they aren't going to be there to do the reconciliation. And uh, somebody called me from the Hill, a person who works on the Hill, and told me this person has been working day and night on the reconciliation bill. What's the significance of that? Staff are working on the bill. These senators are not working on the bill. Not like that. And the way the Senate works is the people who have primary responsibility, uh, jurisdiction over certain issues like the budget committees, for example, they work on the bill and they hold hearings or not. They have sessions to mark up the bill, to consider amendments. It goes to the Rules Committee. And when it comes to the floor, there is a reliance, a great reliance, on the committees of jurisdiction if there are several committees that consider the matter. So uh, they could walk and chew gum, but they're not doing either this week. They're not doing the reconciliation bill, that is the senators are not, and uh, they're, they're not doing the trial. They had flight tickets to leave town Saturday night, and they ran from the Capitol as soon as they took the vote. I just think that, uh, you know, it's not the beginning and the end of it, but they really should have pursued the witnesses. If you're gonna do something, do it right. And that's, I think, the debate. I know some disagree with me. If you're around this table, I'm sure you would tell me that. <laughs> so, number 14, so we lost by 10 votes the conviction of Trump, uh, requiring two-thirds, uh, 67 votes. Number 15, so where are we now? We must, going forward, fight those ignoble and corrupt senators that put party and personal ambition first. Number 16, we are not impotent anymore in a political sense. 
We have the levers and the wheels to make a difference. We have no excuse for not fighting. We can make the iron hot by striking, and we must make the iron hot by striking. As it has ever been, we have to be vigilant against those whose aim is to destroy the Republic. And we have the enemy within the House and the Senate. So what do we have that allows us the resolve to go forward politically? What power and authority do we have? We have the White House. We did turn out Trump in the election, despite what he said. We have the House of Representatives. We have the majority. We have the Senate. We have a very thin majority. We can end the filibuster in the Senate, and we must, because we're going to need the majority to pass legislation that's critical for the country. We have the cabinet, the officers that we're going to have in the cabinet. We have agency representatives and appointments for those political positions that are entirely within the appointment power of the president. We have openings on the court to fill, particularly the district court, that's the trial court, and the appellate court. We have litigation to contain the lawless. We have both civil and criminal potentials. For Trump, there are a number of matters in the state and federal government in New York. In D.C., the word is that there's an investigation of the insight to riot. In Georgia, there's the question of interfering in the election, not just for Trump, but also for Rudy Giuliani and for Senator Lindsey Graham. We have elections next year in the House and the Senate. We have to fight to win those. We have to not just hold the line, we have to expand our reach in those elections. We have 20-plus state legislatures who are considering legislation to suppress the votes, to talk about when one can vote, how one can vote, to talk about the mail-in ballots, to restrict them in ways that they hope, by tamping those down, will give an edge in those Republican legislatures. What's going to happen there? Democratic legislators are going to push back. They're going to fight those charges. They're going to make the constitutional objections. The courts will hear those disputes as well. But what I'm saying is that the vigilance must continue. We're put on notice by this impeachment proceeding that there are people who are not just afraid of or dependent on Trump. They are with him as one in a belief system that is inimical to the democratic theory of our government. With the census, we will have redistricting that would change Senate and House state offices affect congressional seats. We have to know and consider the Republican strategy in these ba battles. To cheat, we have to watch out how they might suppress, and we have to be ready to defeat it. Those are all hard fights. There are people lined up in all the states and in the party, and there are Google groups, and there are independent individuals, and there are people like you and I who will contribute to it and talk about it. So Yates had it right. Do not wait to strike till the iron is hot, but make it hot by striking. Uh -huh.
Well, I'm uh, going to conclude this uh, roundtable now <laughs> that I've dominated, and I hope that you found some of these remarks interesting. Uh, I thought that we should consider what a special day this is. Uh, one of the reasons I'm getting to this late and consider this approach to the discussion is because uh, this is uh, Valentine's Day. And uh, there's a, I feel strongly about Yeats today, and he has a, he has a quote that he says, out of the quarrel with others we make rhetoric, but out of the quarrel with ourselves we make poetry. And poetry is uh, sort of like wisdom about things that uh, are important to us. So I thought I'd divert a little bit and not talk about the most personal poetry because, uh, you know, that the most intimate poetry is addressed only to one person, the object of love or association or caring. Uh, since I'm on Yates, he has, a, he has a drinking song that you may have heard of. It goes uh, like this. Uh, Wine comes in at the mouth and love comes in at the eye. That's all we should know for the truth before we grow old and die. So I lift the glass to my mouth I look at you, and I sigh. Yeats had some great loves in his life and enormous uh, frustrations. Those of you who have ever read the correspondence between him and Maud Gunn, uh, two very articulate and amazing people, uh, you could see how she spun him around. And uh, so that's uh, worth reading. Of the poets that I think about, most of it is uh, too intimate probably to read without, uh, I don't know, kind of overstepping the privacy. But there's one that we all talked about in high school, so it has to be safe. The Jesuits wouldn't have allowed us to do anything else. And uh, it presumes a, a marriage, legal or otherwise. And uh, it's one of his many sonnets. I think it's sonnet, sonnet 116. And uh, it goes this way. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alterations finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth unknown, although his height be taken, loves not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. So on this uh, Valentine's Day, I leave you with those thoughts. Uh, <laughs> uh, I hope that uh, they strike a chord with you and uh, they give you some surcease from the other topics we discussed, which are the attempted ravaging of our democracy in favor of the selfish drive to rule. 
And I put that up against our individual caring and love for each other, because we are meant to be with each other. We are a political animal, but we are also an animal that needs human comfort and intimacy and a sharing of life's best and worst times. So all the best. I'll uh, talk to you again next Sunday. Bye-bye.